And the way that that works is that God, through the death of Jesus, through giving himself to die on the cross, provided a way that God could forgive man and, and release him from the penalty of the law he justly deserves to receive, and yet at the same time uh, bring an influence upon the mind of man that will be as strong as or stronger than the influence of the soul that sins it shall die on the mind of man. Okay? So then God is upholding his government over man. He's upholding his government. And if the man responds to that, then God has accomplished in the man's life what he set out to accomplish through the law, and that is to love God, to love other men, and then God is free to forgive the person. And what does forgiveness mean? mean? It means that the execution of the penalty that you deserve to receive will not be carried out on you. The execution of the penalty that you deserve to receive will not be carried out on you. That's what forgiveness means. Okay? And because of that, because then we can be free from the penalty of the law, and that penalty is not carried out, part of that is separation from God, which means then we can have relationship with God again. We can talk with him. He talks with us. He gives us guidance. We enter into what is called the kingdom of God, or if you want to put it this way, we come back under the privileges of his government. Because of our sin, we were excluded from the privileges of God's government. Your sins have separated between you and your God. You, as he made alive, who were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Okay? We were separated from God. We were spiritually dead. Uh, all kinds of awful things were happening to us because of our sin. And we were excluded from the privileges of God's government. But then when we repent... Because of the influence of the cross on us, the preaching of Jesus, the preaching of the gospel, and we repent, then God is free to give to us those things that he always wanted to give us in privilege under his government because we come under, under his government again. Okay, now what we want to do is look at some uh, verses of scripture about the atonement. We want to look at the nature of the atonement. We want to look at the contrast of the old and new covenants. <laughs> We've got a lot to do in this uh, hour and a half. <laughs> Okay, um, Romans 3. Hmm? We're just talking, well, principle of atonement, if you want to continue. <clears throat> the title for today, of course, in both lectures is the principle of the atonement. Okay, um, Romans 3, thank you. Romans, Romans 3, verses 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly. Now think, don't just let these words go through your mind because it's complicated. Okay? Whom, that is Jesus, God displayed publicly. Was the crucifixion a public thing? Mm -hmm. as a propitiation the word propitiation means atoning sacrifice okay God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith you got that he was an atoning sacrifice through his death but it's necessary for us to respond with faith not faith that Jesus died because that's a fact you don't have to believe that 
but the response should be, when we were in unbelief towards God, what he wants us to do is repent and turn and start trusting God. That's what it means to have faith in God. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Remember this? Why did God have to demonstrate his righteousness? Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Now, whose sins were those? The people under the old covenant, right. He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time that he might be just, that is, upholding the law, being completely fair, not destroying his government, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, what does it mean to be justified? It says, therefore, being justified through faith, we have peace with God. By faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The word justified does not mean just as if I'd never sinned. <laughs> God never views us just as if we'd never sinned. How would he know then that you need to be healed of a lot of things in the past if he viewed you as just as if you'd never sinned? And yet he knows, doesn't he? Okay. The word justified is a legal word which means that the execution of the penalty of the law will not be carried out on you. The execution of the penalty of the law will not be carried out on you. God has not tampered with his law in order to forgive you. That would not have been right. His law, the law is holy and just and good. God did not tamper with his law in order to forgive you. He found a way to maintain government over you and at the same time release you from the penalty of the law. To be justified means that the execution of the penalty of the law will not be carried out on you. When you are forgiven, it means that the sins that you have committed, you will not suffer the penalty of those things. Justification and forgiveness are basically the same thing, yes? It's all basically one act. Redemption, Paul the Apostle defines as the forgiveness of sins in the book of Colossians in chapter 1. He says redemption in Christ Jesus, that is the forgiveness of sins. So if your idea of redemption implies payment, you get a bit of a problem there because he says it's forgiveness of sins. And we get a lot of our definitions from places other than the Bible and we need to be careful to see, does the Bible give a definition of this? such as adoption of sons. What does the word adoption of sons mean? You know now. What is the word adoption of sons? Yes, you. What does it mean? Adoption of sons. We are going to, we are going to be adopted as sons. Our bodies will be redeemed. Romans 8.23 says that we are awaiting our adoption as sons. It does not talk, it's not talking about salvation. It's talking about the redemption of our bodies. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown within ourselves, awaiting our adoption as sons. It hasn't happened yet. That is the redemption of our bodies. And so in Ephesians 1.5, where it says that God predestined us to adoption as sons, it means he predestined us, Christians, to have our bodies redeemed. The only way you can get out of having your body redeemed, if you want to do such a thing, the only way you can get out of it is to stop being a Christian. Then you won't have your body redeemed. So, I'm not complaining, though. I'd be very glad to have my body redeemed. <laughs> he predestined us to that. Okay, um, so, do you understand now what he's saying in Romans 
3, 25 and 26. Whom God displayed publicly. He had to make a public display. Why? Because all these Gentiles and Canaanites were saying, boy, he'd better do something and show himself righteous in this and forgiving people under the old covenant. God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just, that is, upholding the law, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, now let's go to Hebrews. I would suggest that you take Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, at least chapter 10 through verse 18, Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, and read them, meditate upon them, and I think you'll find them a little easier to understand now that you have some understanding of the Old Testament sacrifices and the death of Jesus and how it surpasses that. But let's read, um, starting with verse nine, chapter 9, verse 13. Chapter 9, verse 13. Boy, I want to read the whole chapter. <laughs> it was chapter 9, verse 13. But I feel like reading a little earlier than that, a little farther up than that. Mm. Ooh, it's all so good. Well, start with verse 13. <laughs> For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more? You see that comparison? He's going to compare the blood of Christ, the death of Jesus with the Old Testament sacrifices. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The death of Jesus can actually cleanse the conscience from dead works, whereas the blood of bulls and of goats could only cover sin. God could not communicate under the old covenant. He could not communicate to people through the Holy Spirit that their sins had been completely dealt with. He couldn't do that. Um, uh, chapter 10, verse 2. Well, chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Now, what does it mean to be made perfect? Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. See, not a sufficient sacrifice, not a sufficient influence in the mind of man to handle the problems in God's government. But when Jesus came and he died, then back to chapter 9, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. God can communicate to us under the new covenant that we are completely free from sin. We will not have the penalty of the law carried out on us. 
Under the old covenant, God could not communicate that to people's minds because it wasn't yet true. It would have been dishonest. And so he could not communicate through the Holy Spirit that they were completely free. And so they had to, there had to be a reminder of sins year by year because their conscience couldn't be completely clear because God had not yet offered the ultimate sacrifice that would handle the problems in his government. And so God could not give them under the old covenant many of the things that he wanted to give them. See, many of these things are the privileges of God's government. And he could not release them to people under the old covenant until God had, till he had made the ultimate sacrifice that would allow him to do so. We deserve to be excluded. And the people back then deserved to be excluded from the privileges of God's government. And until he offered the ultimate sacrifice, he could not give them the privileges of being in his government, having the Holy Spirit dwell within you, immediate communication with God, standing in the presence of God, being able to go into the presence of God when you die. In the Old Testament, all souls went down, went to Sheol. We'll talk about that in a minute. Okay? So there were many things. We couldn't have, the, under the Old Covenant, they couldn't have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. But there were little, um, can I say, foretastes under the Old Covenant. You see little examples here and there um, of special grace that God gave people under the Old Covenant of things he was going to do under the New Covenant. You see? You see times when the Holy Spirit came on a person from that time forward, but it was a rare exception. You see? Otherwise, God was in a building over there. God lived over there inside the, inside the tabernacle or inside the temple. And you can go up and worship towards the holy place. You can pray towards the holy place, but you didn't have the privilege of having God dwell in you as a person. God wanted to do that, but he couldn't justly do so because that's a privilege of his government. And the people could not receive that until the sacrifice had been made that would release him justly to be able to give them those things. Okay? So the people could not be cleansed in their conscience. In verse 15 of chapter 9, this is another verse that's like the Romans 3 passage. For this reason, he is the mediator, that's Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. What does that say Jesus died for? Does it say he died for us? Redemption of the transgressions. Redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. You see, he died so that those people who had sinned under the old covenant could be justly released and forgiven. See? They were forgiven, but it was not justly. God was simply expressing mercy to them in his forbearance because there was no sufficient sacrifice. But when Jesus died, he died for the redemption of the transgressions committed under the first covenant. It just so happens, however, <laughs> that because of the nature of his death on the cross, it can be applied to us, too, for the redemption of our transgressions, because the sacrifice is sufficient for God to be able to justly forgive us. Okay? Those that were committed under the first covenant, those, that those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Now, what does that mean? That those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Um, the people under the Old Covenant all went 
down. In the Old Covenant, you went down to Sheol. Now, the word Sheol means the place of departed spirits. It does not mean hell in the sense of tor strictly torment. It means the place where all departed spirits went. Thus, David said, I will descend into the pit. Because everybody went to the pit. Whether you were good or bad, you went to the pit. You all went to Sheol. You all went to the place of departed spirits. Now, in Luke 16, Jesus gives us a glimpse of what Sheol is like. Like this. You've got two compartments in Sheol. You have the place that's called Paradise. Where did Jesus say he was going to go on the day that he died? This day you will be with me where? In paradise. Yet most people say when he went to hell, went to Sheol, that he was in the place of torment. Most people have that idea. But he didn't say that. He said he was going to go to paradise. Shock. <laughs> you can see the... That's, that's called not taking into consideration every verse on a subject. Okay? He went to paradise. This is also called Abraham's bosom. Abe's <laughs> bosom. It was also called being gathered together to your people. Or the gathering. Okay? And then the other side was the place of torment for the unrighteous. And there was a great gulf fixed between... However, communication could take place across that gulf. You see that happening with Abraham and the rich man. Okay? They were talking, weren't they, across the gulf. And in hell, it says he lifted up his eyes and he did things like remembering, thinking, feeling. Okay? You're totally aware when you're in hell. You're not obliterated. You're a person and you're in torment. In torment. Not torture, but torment. Okay? So then... Abraham is talking across the gulf with the rich man. And then when, when Jesus died, it says he descended into hell. Now, the problem is that in the Greek, the word Hades has to be forced into two different meanings in Greek. It has to be used for the place of torment after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's also used for the place of Sheol before and during the death and resurrection of Jesus. See? And so when it says that Jesus descended into hell, Jesus said he was going where? Paradise. Okay? So when he went to hell, he went to Sheol, the place of departed spirits. He went to paradise, and it says there he proclaimed to the spirits who were captive. Now, they were captive either one of two ways. They were captive because of their sin in their torment, or they were captive because they were not allowed to go into the presence of God until the death of Jesus. Hmm? What a wait? Yeah, yeah, it was a long wait, wasn't it? Okay, but it was paradise. It wasn't a place of torment, it was paradise. Okay, so then he went there and it says he proclaimed. It doesn't say that he preached. The word is not preached for repentance. He proclaimed what he had done. He came and told these people, I've done it. God has shown himself to be righteous in covering your sin in the past. It's taken care of because I've died. And then he also could communicate with these people, you blew it. You see? You are justly condemned because of your sin and your rebellion against God. But he could proclaim to both sides what he had done without having to be over here. Now you see why David can say, 
Um, even if I make my bed in Sheol, would David have gone to the place of torment? If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. And yet the Bible says, hell, Hades, is everlasting destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Because David would not have gone to the place of torment where God is not. He would have gone to the place of paradise where God is. Okay? Now look, there, that was, uh, the presence of God was there, but it was not in the sense that they were in the pre immediate presence of God in heaven. They were separated from God. Everybody goes down. When Jesus died, in Ephesians 4, it says he led and took a multitude of captives captive. When he ascended on high, he led a multitude of captives captive. They were captive. Why? Because they couldn't go into the immediate presence of God because Jesus had not yet died. God couldn't give them everything he wanted. He couldn't bring them immediately into his presence because that's a privilege of his government that he could not give to them until he had handled the problems in his government so that he could justly forgive them. You get the idea of the contrast of the Old and New Covenant? The reason we can receive so much more under the New Covenant is because Jesus has died. God is now free, justly, to give us many things that he always wanted to give to man but could not do without, without breaking his government and his laws. Couldn't do that. He had to be just. Okay? So then, one of the things is that we can receive the Holy Spirit under the New Covenant. And the Holy Spirit is an immediate indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that people could not have under the Old Covenant. That's a privilege of God's government to be able to have God Himself dwelling in us. Who dwells in you? The Father who is above all and through all and in you all. It is Christ in you that is the hope of glory. What? Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Who lives in you? God does. And the Bible calls the church the fullness of him who fills all in all. We can have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us now in a way that they could not have the Holy Spirit under the Old, on, old Covenant. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. John chapter 7, around verse 35. Like that. It says, the Holy, This he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit. If any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Stay out of his belly shall float rivers of livers out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water and this he spoke concerning the spirit which those who believed in him could receive but the holy spirit was not yet given because jesus was not yet glorified the holy spirit could not be given in the way that he was in the day of pentecost until jesus was glorified okay? not only did jesus have to die but he also had to be raised from the dead and had to ascend to the Father because that was what attested to the, that the Father had accepted his sacrifice. Okay? If he had not been accepted back into heaven, then we would not have received the Holy Spirit because his sacrifice would not have been accepted. That's why the ascension of Jesus is so important uh, in the New Testament. If he had not ascended, then his sacrifice would not have been accepted. But he ascended back into the presence of the Father it meant that the Father accepted the sacrifice, everything was dealt with, and God could justly forgive man and give him what he wanted to give him. Freedom of conscience, we've already talked about. We can be completely clear in our conscience concerning sins because the Holy Spirit can communicate to us it's taken care of. It's dealt with. Because Jesus said it is finished. He had done it. 
You see? It was accomplished. The ultimate sacrifice had been made. It is finished. And so the Holy Spirit can communicate that to us. You are free. If we repent, God is free justly to forgive us our sins. We can have the immediate presence of God now. We can sense God's presence. That was not available to people under the Old Covenant. Not generally, anyway. And then also, we go to heaven when we die. People under the Old Covenant went to Sheol. The righteous people went to paradise. Now, they have been taken into the presence of God. When, When he ascended on high, Ephesians 4, when he ascended on high, he led a multitude of captives captive. And so he took these people and took them into the presence of God. And now when we die, we don't go to Sheol. We don't go to a place to be captive and waiting for a sacrifice. We go immediately into the presence of God. Paul the Apostle said, I would rather be absent from the body so I could be present with the Lord. Under the Old Covenant, people were not immediately present with the Lord. Now, we die, we go immediately to be in the presence of God. Right? John says he saw the souls of those who had been martyred under the altar in heaven. They were in heaven. Okay? The souls of those who had been martyred. Whatever in the world it means that they were under the altar, I don't understand, but the souls of those who had been martyred were in heaven. Okay? Now, someone had a question about um, Hebrews 9:22. says, And according to the law, one may almost say, or the, the words one may and say are actually not in the Greek, according to the law, almost all things are cleansed with blood and... Without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, a lot of people lift this one section out of its context, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But the word says, the rest of the verse says, you can almost say that. But you can't say it absolutely. You know why the writer of the book of Hebrews said that? Because there is an offering in the Old Testament for sin that does not include the shedding of blood. That is listed in Leviticus chapter 5, verses 11 and following. It is the offering of grain as a sin offering. No blood spilled. But it is a sin offering, a trespass offering. So he said, you can almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and you can almost say without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. However, there is a sacrifice that includes no shedding of blood that was for sin. But you see, the principle of sacrifice is the same. Many people harp on the idea that there had to be blood shed for sin to be forgiven. But the principle of sacrifice is the same, whether it's blood that is shed, the sacrifice is blood, or whether it's grain that is burnt. The principle is still the same. It teaches you that sin is costly. It teaches you that God abhors sin. Okay? It teaches you that he cannot break his law in order to forgive you. The principle is exactly the same. It's just that no blood was shed. (laughs) He's going... Okay. Yes, yes. I'm not sure that Cain's problem was that he wasn't offering blood. I think it was another problem that he had. It was his attitude towards God, yes. Okay. Um, 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 Where are we going? (laughs) I've got all these notes out here and I'm sort of picking them. Um, so we've got the Holy Spirit, freedom of conscience, immediate presence of God, heaven itself. 
after we die. Okay, let's talk about the nature of the atonement. Let us talk about the nature of the atonement. What is the atonement like? We saw that the nature of the Old Testament sacrifices, the nature of the Old Testament sacrifices was a spiritual thing. It was not a direct literal payment for sin. You could not offer a lamb anytime you wanted and be forgiven. You had to meet the conditions. The lamb had to have an effect on you morally. And if it did and you repented, then you could be forgiven. But if you offered the lamb and it did not have that effect on you, okay, at its least, it was a worthless offering. At the greatest or at the most, it was an abomination to God. It was worthless if it didn't change you. But at, at its most, it was an abomination. And then God says, how much more if you brought it with evil intent? In other words, if you offered a sacrifice just to let people see how righteous you were, it's even worse than an abomination before God. It had to produce the uh, spiritual, the moral effect in you. Now, I'm going to name four, is it four things? One, two... Three things that the atonement is not, and then one thing that the atonement, the, the, na- the actual nature of the atonement. First of all, we're going to define it according to what it is not. Number one, the atonement does not deal with private justice. I'll explain that. You just write it down and then we'll explain. The atonement does not deal with private justice. Now, in any government, There is both private justice and public justice. Private justice has to do with your individual relationship to the law. That's private justice. Public justice has to do with how the execution of the penalty of the law will affect the minds of all the beings under the government. That's why it's public. Private justice has to do with whether you individually are guilty Not guilty, forgiven, whatever. That's private justice. Public justice has to do with the way that you are treated and the way it will affect the minds of other people. Okay? So private justice has to do with your relationship to the law, whether you're guilty or not in respect to the law. Public justice has to do with the execution of the penalty and the way that that will affect people's minds. Remember what we talked about Hitler? See? Private justice was whether or not you had to do with whether or not you snatched the purse. Public justice had to do with your execution and the effect that it had on the people in the society. You get the difference? Now, the atonement does not deal with private justice. If private justice were carried out, every one of us would have to go to hell, wouldn't we? If private justice were carried out, we all individually, we've sinned, right? Our relationship to the law is that we're guilty. If private justice were carried out, we would all have to go to hell. So in the, in the area of private justice, God has expressed mercy. In the area of public justice, as far as the execution of the penalty is concerned, God has expressed justice, upholding his law through the death of Jesus. In the area of private justice, he has expressed mercy 
That is, we don't have the penalty of the law carried out on us. There is forgiveness. We're free. In the area of private justice, in the area of public justice, the penalty of the law is not carried out on us, but because of the death of Jesus on the cross and its effect on our minds, if we are governed by the cross, then God is free to forgive us. And so what does that do? It says to those in the public arena, it says to all other human beings, if you do not repent, you will go to hell. But God has made a way that the end of the law can be fulfilled in your life through the influence of the cross. And because this person right here, let's all say that everybody here is an unbeliever and she's the only one that's saved. Okay, isn't that wonderful? Okay. If she... If God, I should say, if God has accomplished in her life the end of the law, that is, that God's brought her to the place where she loves God and she loves other people, then because of what he's done on the cross, he's provided an alternate form of government over her. If she's loving God and loving man, then he can justly release her from the penalty of the law. And we, as unbelievers, can look at that and go, well, that's fair. Because she's, she's safe to let out of her little cage on society <laughs> because she's loving God and she's loving man. God demands that that be the condition. She's safe to let out of her cage. And maybe she was even a murderer in the past. But now she loves God and she loves others. So she's safe to be let out in society. Okay? So we can't complain about that. And at the same time, we recognize that we still deserve to be punished because we've rebelled against God and we're still in that state of rebellion against God. So we deserve this. And so the justice is upheld in the public even though the person is forgiven in the private sector. You got that? The individual is forgiven, but justice is upheld in the minds of all the people that are being governed. And so God upheld his justice in the public area, but he was able to express mercy in the private area through what happened. Now what do I mean by the atonement does not deal with private justice. Private justice means we would have to go to hell. So what God did was he forgave us and expressed mercy in the private area. But it does not mean, it does not mean that the law no longer says about us that we're guilty. The law still says that, does it not? Okay. Have we rebelled against God? Yes. Do we deserve to be punished? Yes. Are we guilty for breaking the law of God? Yes. Will we be sent to hell? No. Okay? That gets into public justice. The execution of the penalty will not be carried out on us. But the law still says that we've sinned. 10,000 years from now, if a seraph comes up and asks you, speaking of holiness, because <laughs> they talk about holiness all the time, the Lord is holy, have you ever sinned? Yeah. Well, why aren't you in hell? <laughs> That's what you deserve, isn't it? Yes, well, God found a way through the death of Jesus on the cross to be able to justly forgive me, you see? But the law, 10,000 years from now, will still say that we're guilty. The thing is, we don't have to feel guilty because we can know in our minds that the penalty of the law will not be carried out on us. You get the difference? Technically, technically we're guilty. But as far as the penalty of the law is concerned, it's not going to be carried out on us. So we don't have to live under the feeling and the burden of guilt. 
because we've been forgiven. Okay? That's the first thing. The death of Jesus protects public interest in government. Okay, so it deals with public justice, not private justice. The law says about you that you've sinned. Now, a lot of people teach that the law, no, the law no longer says about you that you've sinned. When God compares your life with the law, he looks at it and it says, you have not sinned. But that's not true. Let's see where I want to put this. Do you, know, you want to see the way they get that kind of reasoning? It's like this. What they say is that Jesus did, well, I'll explain to you before I give you the word or you'll freak out. <laughs> always define before, if you're, if you're a teacher, always define your word before you give the word because it makes people freak out otherwise. And, and once they've got the definition and then you give the word, they go, oh, it's simple. Okay. Okay. The idea is that Jesus did more than he was required to do. He went beyond the call of duty, so to speak. And he did not, the idea is he didn't have to keep the law of God, which I don't know where they get that idea. As a human being, he didn't have to keep the law of God. But that he didn't have to keep the law of God. And so every act that he did as an act of righteousness was beyond what he had to do. Therefore, he developed this big plus sign in the heavens or something like that. He developed this big plus sign. And when you get saved, what God does, these people say, is he takes the plus sign of Jesus and your negative sign and he switches them in reference to the law. So that the law now says about you that you are absolutely righteous and that you've never broken the law. Is that true? No, that's just outside of reality altogether. Say, First of all, is, can there be such a thing as doing more than your obligation? No, you can't do more than your obligation because it requires everything that you have and it required Jesus everything he had to. He had to love the Lord his God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. Just as we do because he was a human being too. Even though he was God in flesh. This idea that Jesus did more than his call of duty and then that can be applied to our account so that we, the law no longer says that we're guilty is called super irrigation. <laughs> No, but that's a simple idea. The idea of going beyond the call of duty and getting a big plus sign in the skies. Okay? Um, And the idea there is then that Jesus didn't have to keep the law of God, but he developed this big plus sign, and that was laid to our account so that um, the law no longer says about us that we are guilty. Okay? Another way that people present this, a very common way, is that sort of God has Jesus-colored glasses on. And so that when he sees you, he does not see you as you actually are, but he sees you as if he sees Jesus. You see? That's just another way of saying exactly the same thing. Now let me ask you, are there two of you, or is there one of you? You I mean, are you you a split personality schizophrenic, or are you not? Are Are there two of you, or is there only one of you? There's only one of you. And if you have sinned, God will not look at you with Jesus-colored glasses and go, I don't see any sin here. Otherwise, how could he convict you? And yet, you ever notice that whenever you do something wrong, the Holy Spirit seems to have a very good sense of reality about what you've done? He seems to see you as if you've actually done something wrong, and he talks to you as if you've done something wrong. 
he doesn't view you as if you've done nothing wrong. You see? And yet people will actually use this as, a, as an excuse. Well, Jesus views me as, as righteous, even though I'm committing adultery right now. You see? That's not true. God has not dealt with the law in such a way that the law no longer says that we're guilty or that we won't be guilty. But what he's done is he's found a way to forgive us without breaking his law. That's what forgiveness means. The penalty will not be carried out on us even though we deserve to have the penalty carried out on us because God's found a way to forgive us without breaking his law. Okay, um, that is called, by the way, um, technically positional theology, that you have a position with God that is different from your actual experience or you, it's sometimes called a standing and a state. Um, you have a standing with God that's different from your actual state or it's called forensic righteousness. You have this legal, forensic means legal, you have a legal position with God that is different from your actual um, choices right now. You can be choosing to rebel against God, but you have this legal standing with God so that God sees you as righteous even though you're rebelling against him. Okay? Let me read you a verse. <laughs> I was so amazed when I read this verse. There is a verse about this in the Bible. I was having my devotions one day and I went, whoa, look at that. I've never seen that before. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. <laughs> and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? You see, they were saying, even though people are doing evil, they're good in the sight of the Lord and God delights in them. That's Malachi 2.17. And God says that kind of talking wearies him, makes him tired. Malachi 2.17. Okay, I didn't realize there was a verse in the Bible about that. <laughs> that people said that and God got upset. He got, it made him tired. <sighs> Okay, so God sees you exactly as you are. And what does forgiveness mean? What does cleansing mean? It means that you will not be treated according to what you deserve to receive. When the Bible says he remembers our sins no more, that is defined in the same context text as they will never be mentioned to him again. It does not mean that God can't remember or think that we've sinned. Of course he can. That's part of reality. He knows that we've broken the law. He sees us that way, and he deals with us that way when we've broken the law. But the thing is, when we've been forgiven, he will never mention those sins to us again. That's what forgiveness is. That's, uh, you can look through all the places to talk about God's remembering and not remembering sin. <laughs> How are we doing? We've got about 45 minutes, don't we? Okay. And your hand, is <laughs> she gets these cramps. She must take extensive notes. Okay, quite all right. I see pens smoking every now and then, you know. Smoke coming up from the pen. Now, first of all, then, the death of Jesus on the cross did not deal with public, uh, with private justice, but it deals with public justice. There is no possible transfer of accounts from Jesus to us. Okay? That's the reason that sin must be forgiven. Now, um, where am I? I'm already in number two and I should have been in number one.
Okay, number number two. <laughs> I just gave you most of number two after number one. <laughs> number two. It is not. The death of Jesus on the cross was not a direct, literal payment for sin. Now, I know, don't freak out, I know that the Bible uses the metaphor of payment. And we've already talked about that. The reason it uses the metaphor of payment is because it was costly to God. It cost him his son. Sin is costly. And so the Bible uses the metaphor of payment. But the question is, um, what are you saying when you say Jesus paid for our sins? You can be saying something with your cliché that you don't want to be communicating. Okay? And so we want to look at that. Some people communicate something that is incorrect because they don't understand what the word payment in the Bible concerning sin means. It was costly. It cost God his son to be able to forgive us, but it was not a direct, literal payment for sin, sort of an, a drop of blood for an ounce of sin, I think. It's not a payment. Okay, now that indicates very, very bad views about God's character. If God demanded, if God demanded that the penalty be paid by someone, what is forgiveness? That means he, he's forgiven no one. He's just taken the penalty out on somebody else. If forgiveness means anything, it means that no one paid, if you want to use the metaphor, no one paid for their sins, if forgiveness means anything. If someone else paid directly and literally for your sins, then God didn't really forgive you. He just took out the penalty on somebody else. It teaches you very bad things about God's character. Now, I know that most of you, when you say Jesus paid for our sins, you wouldn't be communicating that. You wouldn't be thinking that in your minds. But... Because we don't take the trouble to explain to people what we do and do not mean, very often, through the cliché, a bad view of the atonement and of God's character is communicated. So we need to be careful what we communicate. Okay? Now, let me give you an example. If, um, let's say, uh, Wayne, and um, who do we want to have in, in, in trouble here? Okay? Pick somebody else that... Uh, huh? Okay, no, we'll take David in the back there. I could have, could have used Ben, but anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Okay. Um, let's say Wayne and David both have, um, what's a local bank here? Commonwealth. Commonwealth, okay. They both have a debt of $2,000 to the bank. Wayne owes $2,000. David owes $2,000. And I come in with $4,000, and I also have an account in this bank. And I come in with $4,000, and I say, please take $2,000 of this and put it on Wayne's account. Take $2,000 of it and put it on David's account. Now, I've made a payment, haven't I? A direct, literal payment. And so if Wayne comes in and says, um, I'd like to pay some on my, on my account, please, what does the bank manager have to say to him? It's paid. You can't pay anything because it's been paid. He can't demand that both people pay, unless he's a little bit corrupt <laughs> and doesn't tell him. But that doesn't apply in this case. Okay? Now, there's a different situation that could exist where I would come in and put 
$4,000 in my account and then say, if David or Wayne comes in and stands on his head in the bank and whistles Yankee Doodle, <laughs> then you can take the $2,000 two, $2, out of my account and put it in his account. Now, have I directly and literally paid for that? No. If David comes in and doesn't stand on his head and whistle Yankee Doodle, can the bank manager still demand of him $2,000? Yes. See? The, there's a difference there between a payment and a provision. In one case, payment is made, and because one has paid the penalty, nobody else can pay it. It doesn't need to be paid anymore. But if a provision is made and there are conditions involved, then it is not a direct literal payment and the person can still have that demanded of them unless they meet the conditions. But if the conditions are met, then it can be transferred to the other person's bank account. Okay, it is not a direct literal payment for sin. Now, we are going to do some reasoning with the idea of payment. A direct, remember the bank illustration, and we're going to use... I'm going to get this off of here first. We are going to use the idea of payment with some statements from the Bible. Now, as far as I can understand, and I think it's probably pretty clear to you too, number one, the Bible says that Jesus died for everybody, doesn't it? I think that's pretty clear. Jesus died, I know some people deny this, but Jesus died for all. A second thing that I think is pretty clear from the Bible is that not everybody is going to be saved. Actually, not everybody is being saved at this present time. Jesus said, few there be who are finding it, that is the narrow path. Okay? So not everybody, not all men, are being saved. As far as I know, that's what there's the two things that basically the Bible communicates. Not all are being saved and Jesus died for all. Now we are going to start with the idea that the atonement is a direct literal payment for sin. That, in logical terms, is called your major premise. The atonement was a direct literal payment for sin. That when Jesus died, he directly and literally paid for sin. Now, if the atonement was a payment for sin, let's take as a minor premise, second step, Jesus died for all men. And your conclusion will be what? Everybody is going to be saved. But is that what the Bible says? Look at number two. Okay? Your conclusion is, if it's a direct literal payment for sin, and Jesus died for everybody, then all are going to be saved. Or all are being saved. And that's not true, is it? That is a doctrine called universalism. Universalism, the idea that everyone will be saved, comes from the idea that Jesus died for everyone and that the atonement was a direct literal payment for sin. Therefore, if Jesus paid for everybody's sin, God cannot demand that any of them 
pay for their sin, so none of them can go to hell. And that is called called universalism. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to go through this logic again, but we're going to change the minor premise. The atonement is a direct, literal payment for sin, but not everybody, not all men, are being saved. This is a little trickier. Therefore, you would conclude what? If the atonement is a direct, literal payment for sin, and not everybody is being saved, huh? he'd be making choices, which means that what about the death of Jesus? He didn't die for everybody. But you see this up here? <laughs> it goes against the Bible, doesn't it? So, so what happens is it's Jesus did not die for all. And this is a doctrine called limited atonement. Which means that Jesus only died for a few select people out of the whole human race. He only died for a few select people that God wanted to save. Commonly called, commonly called the elect or the predestined or whatever. Okay? The idea that Jesus only died for certain people and that's why only certain people are being saved because it was a direct literal payment for sin. That is called limited atonement. Okay, now we're going to go back and do this. We'll take as a major premise, Jesus died for everybody. Take as the minor premise, not all are being saved. And so the conclu- you have to make some kind of a conclusion about the nature of the atonement. Therefore, what does that mean, about the nature of the atonement? It was a provision, but it was not a direct literal payment. They're called syllogisms that we're doing. S-Y-L-L-O-G-I-S-M-S, syllogisms. Okay? Jesus died for all, clearly stated in the Bible. God wants all men to come to the knowledge of the truth. God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. Okay, Jesus wants everybody to be saved. Whoever comes to me, I will no wise cast out. Okay, then not all are being saved, which is also a true biblical statement. Not everybody's being saved. You can see it from reality, too. <laughs> not everybody's being saved. So the, the conclusion, then, is that the nature of the atonement is that it's not a payment. It is not a direct literal payment if both of these things are true. Okay? So that it's not a payment, but the atonement is a provision. For sin, and there are conditions involved. It's wonderful that you don't have to stand on your head and whistle Yankee Doodle. Okay? The atonement is a provision for sin, or it is general. That's called the general view of the atonement. And there are conditions involved. That is, that on the death of Jesus on the cross did not directly and literally pay for sin, but through it, God made a way that everyone could be forgiven. But there are conditions involved. It depends on whether or not you respond to the influence. Well, how you respond, I should say. Depends on how you respond to the influence. And if in your life you are affected in such a way that you choose to start loving God and loving men 
and the end of the government is accomplished in your life, then God is free to justly forgive you and release you from the penalty of the law. And he did that through the death of Jesus on the cross. Number three, the atonement was not a punishment. Jesus did not take our punishment on the cross. What is the punishment for sin? What kind of death? Eternal spiritual death, separation from God. Is physical death a punishment for sin? No. Physical death is a consequence of sin. That's okay. Most everybody thinks that. Okay? Physical death is not a punishment for sin. Physical death is a consequence of sin. If you have a punishment for sin, it must be just, right? And if it's just, that means that people who sin more should have more punishment, right? Okay? Did Hitler die physically? Yes. Does your average housewife in Australia die physically? Yes. They both die they both go through the same thing, physical death. And yet one may be much more, much more uh, wicked than the other. Do Christians die physically? Yes. People that have been forgiven. See, the, the, the penalty, uh, if it were punishment, then when people are forgiven and the punishment is not going to be carried out, then Christians should not die physically. Physical death is not, propor it's not proportional to the guilt of the person. This is physical death is not proportional to the guilt of the person. Innocent parties suffer physical death. Children die. Babies die. Even before they're born, sometimes they die. Okay? So, the innocent parties suffer it, which would not then, it, then it wouldn't be just. But as a consequence of sin, we can understand that. As a punishment, we could not understand that in the justice of God. Christians shouldn't die if, the, um, if they are forgiven. And physical death is not an adequate expression of the law that it's been broken. It's not an adequate expression. Only eternal separation from God is an adequate expression of the law that's been broken, the law of love. So then when Jesus died, when Jesus died, his physical death was not, could not have been a punishment for sin because that isn't even the punishment for sin. The punishment for sin consists in separation from God for eternity. Was Jesus separated from the Father for eternity? No. So it was not punishment. Also, it is not just of, it would not have been just of God for Jesus to suffer our punishment. It also wasn't necessary. You should be seeing that by now. It wasn't necessary for Jesus to suffer our punishment. But it would not have been just of God for Jesus to suffer our punishment because the Bible says in Ezekiel 18 that God follows a very strict law every man shall be judged for his own sin he never allows someone to be judged for somebody else's sin or punished for somebody else's sin every man is responsible for his own sin and will be judged for his own sin in just a moment oh yes so then what happened with Jesus. Now there are two ways that you can read the statement. This came up during a break. There are two ways you can read the statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
If Jesus was separated from the Father, he was in paradise, so the presence of the Father was there anyway, but if he was separated from the Father, then it was for a moment, and at the long, that's at the shortest, and for at the longest it was three days. But not eternally. So it still couldn't be, a pun he couldn't have suffered our punishment because he'd still have to be separated from the Father. However, you do not have to interpret the verse that way either. There's also another way that that can be looked at. And I'll, maybe you've never heard this before, but you just think about it. The Jews had a custom of reminding one another of certain ideas by quoting the first line of a psalm. And then because they all memorized their songbook, you know how we memorize hymns? Well, they memorized the psalm. A little easier for them because it was in poetic form. To us, in English, it doesn't come out in poetic form. But to them, it was easier to memorize. So they would memorize psalms. They, and they would hear them in the Sabbath, they would sing them, and they would memorize them. And so if I wanted to talk to you about, um, say I wanted to say that I'm really being tempted to be envious of a wicked person who is prospering, even though I'm a righteous person and I'm suffering, I might say to you, my steps had almost slipped when I saw the wicked spreading himself as a green bay tree. You see? And what you would do then as a Jew is you would think down through Psalm, what we know as Psalm 73, 73rd Psalm. You would think down through the rest of the Psalm in your mind and go, yeah, I know what you mean. Okay? You would think through that in your mind as a Jew. And that's the way they reminded each other of those kinds of passages. They would quote the first line. If I wanted to communicate to you that God is a wonderful, uh, he takes care of me in a wonderful way, I would say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And you would think down through Psalm 23. Okay? So here's Jesus dying on the cross. These people are watching him. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is what? The first line of Psalm 22. And what would that do in the minds of the people who were watching? They would think down through Psalm 22. And they would look and they would go, hands and feet pierced. Looking upon his bones. They would see all the characteristics that's prophesied in Psalm 22, what he was going to go through in his crucifixion, and then it would, have, it would have made the people realize that he was fulfilling it and he was the Messiah. Because they recognized that to be a messianic psalm because it had never happened. You see? So that's an alternative way. I'm not going to be absolutist on this because you could say Jesus was separated from the Father if you want to, but it really wasn't necessary. And even if he was separated, at the most it was three days. And so it was not. I don't think it could have been any longer than a moment because then he was in paradise. Um, but at the most three days, then he did not suffer the penalty uh, of, the, of the, um, the law that we broke. So then he wasn't, uh, he wasn't punished, but it's very... See, the thing is, the line's close here. He wasn't punished but he was an innocent person who suffered. He, as an innocent person, suffered so that we, as guilty persons, won't have to suffer. And there was a substitution there. It wasn't that Jesus paid our penalty directly and literally. It wasn't that he suffered our punishment. But there was an exchange. That is, he, as, a, as an innocent party, suffered so that we, as guilty parties, could be free from the penalty of the law. So there was a substitution and an exchange. 
but it was not a direct literal payment and he did not suffer our punishment directly. But he as an innocent person died so that we could be free. Now let me read you a verse that will become a little clearer for you now that you've heard that. First Corinthians, Second Corinthians 5, I think it's 21. Yes? 2 Corinthians 5.21. Let's just listen to this. He, that is God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, which means what? He was sinless, innocent, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, see, a lot of people have a really mystical view of this. God the Father made him to be sin for us. But he compares it with the second half of the verse, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What does it mean that we become the righteousness of God in him? It means that we are treated as if we are righteous, even though we're guilty. And so then what does the first half of the verse mean? He was treated as if he was guilty, even though he was righteous. God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we, I've got my King James Version mixed up here, he made him who knew no sin, he'd never sinned, he was innocent, to be sin on our behalf. He, he suffered as a guilty person, as if he were guilty. See? Even the thief on the cross knew that. He said, we're dying because we need to. We've sinned, but this guy hasn't done anything wrong. See? Remember that? One of the thieves said, he started railing on Jesus, saying nasty things about him, and he said, oh, be quiet. That we deserve to suffer because we've sinned, but he hasn't done anything that's wrong. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, God allowed himself in Christ to be treated as if he were guilty, even though he was innocent, so that we can be treated by him as if we're innocent, even though we're guilty. Okay then, so number four, the atonement is a provision. For sin. The atonement is a provision for sin. I want to ask the question again. If the atonement was a direct literal payment for sin, or if Jesus took our punishment on him, what is forgiveness? You see, nothing was forgiven then. It was only transferred to somebody else, and God demanded blood in his vindictive nature, which the Bible doesn't describe God that way, you see. He never demanded anything like that. He wanted to forgive. His problem was not wanting to forgive or that a payment had to be made, but it was that the law, imagine a little chart here, it was that the law had to be upheld at the same time that he forgives us. Why? So that he doesn't harm us at the same time that he forgives us. He had our well-being in mind. You see? There was nothing that needed to be satisfied in the being of God. He wasn't vindictive. He wasn't holding any grudge against us. He never became bitter against us when we sinned. That wasn't the problem. The problem was, how do I forgive them without at the same time harming them? You see? It was for our well-being. And he did not have to do it. He didn't have to do that in his justice. But he did it because he's the kind of God that he is. So when we come to God, we can never say, God, you have to forgive me. Can't do that. But we say, God, even though you don't have to forgive me, you didn't have to give your son for me, I thank you that that's the kind of God that you are, that you did give your son for me and you do want to forgive me. But we can never claim that because we don't deserve it. 
Um, he, he's done it because of his love, not because of... He's not carried out his justice on us. You can use the word payment. I don't mind if people say Jesus paid for our sins when they're preaching. It's a short term to use. But the thing is, you must understand what you're communicating when you use the word payment. Otherwise, you will communicate to people something that is improper. And it will communicate something about the character of God that is awful. You see? That God demanded blood, somebody's blood. And if it wasn't going to be ours, it had to be somebody else's. Okay? And you don't want to communicate that when you're preaching because you're communicating something bad about the character of God. But if you use the word payment, then you should be ready to explain. What do I mean that Jesus paid for our sins? Well, it cost God everything he had. It cost him his son to be able to forgive us. Sin is costly. It took that for us to be able to be forgiven by God. Sin is costly. Okay? Now, in conclusion, believe it or not, I'm going to conclude. <laughs> in conclusion, I think, let me look at my notes a minute here to see if I've gotten everything. I don't want you to miss anything. Mm hmm. Okay. Mm hmm. Yes. Yes. Got that. <laughs> Got that. Boy, we got it and have 15 minutes to spare. Um, okay, now see, I wasn't really satisfied with where I left you off last night. And when I went home and, and prayed, I went, they didn't get it. <laughs> They're going to have to get it again this morning. And uh, the Lord showed me that you didn't get fully the idea of the dilemma of God uh, last night. So we had to take it over again this morning until you really got the point and then... Uh, you could understand why it was necessary for Jesus to die on the cross. I want to say in conclusion, the atonement, the death of Jesus, was absolutely necessary. Absolutely necessary. If Jesus had not died, we could not be forgiven. If Jesus had not died, we could not be forgiven by God. We would still have to be, have our sin covered by animal sacrifices until the time that God offered the ultimate sacrifice. But if Jesus had not died, we could not be justly forgiven because God would not be able to set us free from the penalty of the law without doing harm to us at the same time. And so the atonement of Jesus was absolutely necessary. It functions on the basis of influence. It functions on the basis of influence. Now, see, some, the reason I'm saying this so emphatically is that some people go away from my lectures, and I don't want you to do this, nor do I want anybody that listens to the tape to think this. Um, some people think, they go away and they say, oh, Mike Siah only believes that Jesus died on the cross as an influence over us. You see? Well, if that were true, he could have stood up and said some wonderful sermon, which he gave many wonderful sermons, and that would have been enough. He wouldn't have had to die, you see? But it was absolutely necessary for Jesus to die on the cross or God could not be free justly to forgive us. It functions on the basis of influence. That's how it works. But that's not all that it is. Okay? I don't want you to get that idea. There had to be that ultimate sacrifice. It wasn't just an influence. Although that's the way it works. It functions on the basis of influence. And why? 
Does it have to function on the basis of influence? You should be able to answer that now. Because we have a free will and God must leave us free to choose or not to choose. Our minds have to be influenced by the cross. Only if we submit to the influence of the cross and are changed by that and fulfill the end of the government which God intended for us. Which What's the end of the government? Love. Only if we submit to the influence and are changed so that we start fulfilling the end of the government, only then can God justly forgive us. So what does that mean? There are conditions involved. There are conditions involved in salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. By grace... Are you saved through faith? Grace is the grounds of salvation. Remember the grounds and conditions of the right to rule? Remember that? They're the grounds of the right to rule. That is, we need to be ruled. The conditions of the right to rule is that God has a character and nature to rule. Okay? He meets the conditions. The grounds is in our nature. We need to be ruled. Grace is the grounds of salvation. If God had not offered grace, if he had not given us himself in Christ, then we would not be able to be saved, no matter what we did, repentance and all. The condition of salvation is faith. By grace, through faith, that's the condition. And you will find grace contrasted with works in the Bible, and you will find faith contrasted with works in the Bible, but you will never find grace contrasted with faith. You won't find any statements it's by grace, not faith. You see? And there are people who actually teach that. They say, do, do you believe... People have asked me this kind of thing. Do you believe that you're saved because you believe in God? And I say, yes, if an atonement has been offered. Okay? Do you believe that you're saved by believing in God? Yes. Then you believe in salvation by works. They believe faith because you choose to do it is a work. Well, they just don't... They're, I mean, the whole understanding is screwy because they don't understand what Paul the Apostle means by a work. Paul the Apostle was a Pharisee. And what did the Pharisees do to try to gain favor with God? They tried to keep the law, works, in order to try to get, gain favor with God. Okay? But Paul the Apostle never said that faith was a work. He said faith is a condition. Okay? We, it's an atonement in his, blood, in his blood, grace, through faith, condition. Okay? We are kept by the power of God through faith. There are conditions involved. But the condition is not a work. You find grace contrasted with works. It's by grace, not works. It's by faith, not works. But you never find it's by grace, not faith. It's by grace through faith. You get the idea? Faith is not a work. Faith is just a condition that you have to meet. Faith is not a work. Faith is a condition. By grace, through faith. And when it says, and that, not of yourselves, the word that is neuter. The word faith is feminine. And so the word that is not modifying the word faith. This is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, in case you know where it was. By grace are you saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves. The word that is neuter. And it modifies the whole phrase that went before, not the word faith. Some people will say, 
And that not of yourselves. See, the faith isn't even of yourself. God has to give you the faith to believe. It's not true. See? God commands us to choose to believe. That's our choice to believe. But it's salvation by grace through faith is the gift of God. Salvation by grace through faith is the gift of God. It's the whole phrase that went before that's being modified. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. The gift of God is salvation by grace through faith. It is a gift, a free gift that he has given us. We haven't worked for it. We didn't deserve it because we broke his law. Nothing we can do to earn it. He had to give us his grace in the death of Jesus on the cross. And in Ephesians 2 and verse 7, it says, In the ages to come, we will still be finding out about the grace that was bestowed on us in Christ Jesus. 2 and verse 7. In the ages to come, we are going to find out the grace that was bestowed on us in Christ Jesus. In other words, we're going to be learning for all eternity. And one of the things we're going to be learning about is the grace that God gave us in Christ in forgiving us. There's that much grace that we'll be learning about it for the ages to come. So you think you've had a head full this week. Wait till you get to heaven. You're going to be still learning in heaven, so you may as well get prepared. You're still going to be learning about the grace of Jesus. Okay, I hope I'm not the one who has to do the teaching. <laughs> okay, I'm sure God's going to do that directly somehow. Okay, so then there are conditions to salvation. It's by grace through faith. And tonight, we're going to talk about the conditions of salvation. And then maybe we'll talk a little bit about how to preach this to people.